0: Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Katherine Stevens. I'm a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute specializing in early childhood learning and development. It's my great honor to host today's conversation with Professor James Heckman on the role of families in human flourishing. A little background on Professor Heckman. He's been at the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago, my alma mater, since 1973. He was one of the founders of U of C's Harris School of Public Policy. And since 1991, he's also been a research fellow at the American Bar Foundation. In May, 2014, he launched the Center for the Economics of Human Development at the University of Chicago. In 2000, Professor Heckman shared the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on the micro econometrics of diversity and heterogeneity, and for establishing a sound causal basis for public policy evaluation. Right. He's received dozens of additional awards for his work, um, has published over 300 uh, articles and nine books, and is currently co-editor of the Journal of Political Economy. Professor Heckman's primary focus throughout his professional life has been on trying to understand the origins of major social and economic problems like inequality, social mobility, and discrimination, and defining effective strategies for addressing those problems. Today, I'll be talking with him about his recent interdisciplinary research on human development and skill formation over the life cycle. That work is focused on examining the origins of inequality, the determinants of social mobility, and the links among stages of the human life cycle starting in the womb. We'll take 50 minutes or so for my one-on-one discussion with Professor Heckman about this recent work. There are two ways to ask questions. You can email them to martha.baker at aei.org, martha.baker at aei.org, or send them via Twitter using hashtag Heckman at AEI. With that, Professor Heckman, I'm truly thrilled to welcome you to AEI today for this conversation.
0: Well, I look forward to it. I hope we have some chance to talk about some ideas and uh, and, uh, think more deeply about certain aspects of public policy.
1: Terrific. So as you and I have discussed a couple of times over the years, while many people are aware of your outstanding research on particular early childhood programs, like Perry and Abecedarian, and are familiar with the Heckman curve, I believe many people misunderstand or simply don't know the fundamental ideas that underpin and drive so much of your work. So I'd like to spend our first 20 to 30 minutes focusing on your theory of human capital development because it's so crucial to your thinking. And I'm especially eager for our audience to get a better understanding of its depth and nuance. So to start with, you've said that the source of a nation's wealth is the skill of its people. Can you explain what you mean by that and how it fits into your theory of human capital development?
0: Well, that's an old idea. I think you'll find the uh, seeds of that idea, in Adam Smith, and virtually every economist who's ever thought about the, uh, the larger aspect of the economy until at least, I would say at least until the beginning of the 20th century when human skills kind of were put to the side with a real emphasis on capital, uh, physical capital, investment as being an important, which is an important component of human, of economic development. But it's also the case, especially starting at the University of Chicago with people like uh, my former colleagues, late colleagues, I should say, Ted Schultz and Gary Becker, and my colleague at Columbia, where I was for a while, Jacob Menser, there was an emphasis on human capital, an understanding that the skills invested and created in a person play as big a role as any capital in creating uh, the flourishing of an economy. And so, I think there's been a fairly recent—I mean, by recent, the last 60, 70 years—understanding <clears throat> that both physical and human capital play a central role in creating uh, the wealth of a country and the, the development of the country and, and the development of its people. And more than just an aggregate of economic productivity, it creates opportunity for the individual. I mean, for generations, people have talked about education. Education is only one form of human capital, an important form. And we now understand education as part of a general skill formation process. So the idea is to use economic theory to integrate aspects of human capabilities and how they're formed. And of course, how they work with capital as well. So there's a, it's a very rich area which really allows us to examine how the economy is evolving. What are the characteristics of people that cause them to be successful? And what are the characteristics of groups of people that cause economies to develop and to take advantage of opportunities as they come along?
1: Mm -hmm. So can you explain um, what you describe as the technology of skill formation?
0: Well, it's a very basic idea. See, one thing I worry about in, these, in this whole literature is economists, and for that matter, academics generally, may take a very simple idea and obscure it into something that is that becomes almost incomprehensible. Uh, so I want to go back to the very basic idea. You can think of like a tree or any kind of organic uh, mechanism, any kind of any kind of plant, let's take a plant as an example. The, 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 the dynamics of the growth of a tree, a plant, a person is really the question of how one forms the base. In the case of the tree, you plant a seed, the seed grows, and then as the seed and the tree are flourished, are, are nourished, I should say, the tree grows. The same is true of a human being, that we really are born and it's conditioned even before birth. Play a fundamental role. And I don't just mean genetics, although genetics does play a big role. I'm not, I think anybody denying the role of genetics is just denying reality. But there is a powerful role too for experience, for family, and for environment. And then what we've learned from the neuroscientists is a lot. I mean, I have a colleague here at the University of Chicago, late colleague now, who talked about neuroplasticity some 30, 40 years ago name was Hutton And they talked about the idea of how the brain was forming and how all the synapses and how the, how the connective tissue of the brain, uh, the, 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 the gray matter and the white matter were forming and they were conditioned on the experience that those children had. And so they build on each other. So you build a synaptic link. You can keep that link if you use that link and then you can expand on that link. So it's the biology that's at the core of this, but it's also the interaction with society because families can nourish those links or suppress them. And we have a lot of evidence on both.
1: So you've, you've described self-skill formation of a life cycle process. Yes. And you, you, you've, um, you talk about about characteristics of skills like self-productivity, dynamic complementarity, can you describe what what that means? What those, what that, what, what that, what the life is? Okay, well, there,
0: there are different names for this concept. Dynamic complementarity has a counterpart in some other aspects of both sociology and, uh, and for that matter, uh, psychology. And that is something called the Matthew effect. And the Matthew effect more generally says that to those who have more is given. Now the dynamic complementarity is a little bit more specific than that. And so the Matthew effect was originally Uh, created as a statement about uh, scholarship and citations in science, but actually there's something deeper here. So it's like a Matthew effect, but what it is, is that we think about a productivity. So I'm an economist. So we think about what I call production functions. You make inputs, the inputs interact with what the available stock of skills is. And then those inputs then lead to the next stage of skill. So skilled formation is a dynamic process. And so what happens then with this dynamic complementarity is that if you have a good skill base, then down the road, further investments like schooling, like work experience, like interaction with your colleagues at the workplace or out in the society at large, become generally more productive. So if you get an early skill base, you can go forward in life and basically do more skill and be more productive at every activity you undertake. So it's a statement about how you form skills. So once you have it, it's easier to get more of it is the claim. So there really is a sense in which uh, it's just a very, very simple and intuitive process that, uh, but it is a process that involves dynamic actions that agents are basically parents, society, schools, teachers, workers, coworkers are essentially interacting with you or with the person we're considering and, and helping to create skills and opportunities for that person. But a good skill base is important. So for example, I'll give you an example that's really very important for public policy. A lot of people are concerned about the black white gap in college going. We see big gaps in, in who goes to college, okay? No question about it. We still do, it's, it's, it's narrowed, but it's still there. And many people say, oh, what we should do then is try to uh, give tuition scholarships for kids at age 18 or 19 and try to encourage those kids to go to college with the cheaper tuition or maybe even lower the standards or whatever is necessary to get more kids to go to school. But I think what happens in many of those programs that people even offer those programs, scholarship programs, won't take those programs. Why? because often they perceive that they don't have the skills that it's required in college. So before you really start promoting people from high school to go to college, you need to build the skills so the person can get to high school, can graduate. And then it just goes back. You say, okay, we go from high school, we go to the eighth grade, the kids really have to learn the skills. So learning is a cumulative process. So we build this base of knowledge, but if we don't have a core, we don't have, basic skills of reasoning, of self-control, of of various aspects of what are called uh, executive functioning that we really have very great difficulty proceeding all the way down the rest of life. So it's just basically saying you need a good start. And then that start, I wouldn't say it's self-propelling but it makes it easier to take advantages all the way down the line. So that's the idea really, very basic idea but probably not much different from me asking how does a redwood grow? Although I know a lot less about redwoods than I do about people, but it's still the case that you would think that if a redwood you know, starts in a, in a situation of starvation, of water, you know, desert like environment, it's not gonna grow very well. It's gonna be very difficult to remediate. And the same is true for dynamic complementarity. And that's the other side, because what dynamic complementarity says is that the later we wait to remediate, the harder it is to remediate. And that's got both biological principles and economic and and psychological principles underlying it. So it has this dual notion. It it gives you the sense of why it's good to invest early and to act early. But it also tells you that if you decide, no, I want to put things later, then you're going to have a serious limitation. And and this, this has important public policy implications that you know, if you go back to the Great Society, say take Lyndon Johnson's Great Society in 1964, 65, he launches this program. And if you thought about this program to end poverty, Johnson was a real optimist about what people could do. So he was talking about changing the skills. He helped start Head Start, his group started Head Start, education programs, college, t- job training programs all the way down the life cycle, even for people Steel workers age 55 laid off in Buffalo, say we're gonna be given retraining. And what the unfortunate consequence was is that the later we waited in life, if we started kind of remediating that the unemployed Buffalo steel worker at 55, that a lot of those steel workers wouldn't even wanna participate in those retraining efforts. They just wouldn't see, the, they wouldn't see the benefit. They didn't think they had much to live. And the ugly fact is that it's harder and harder to learn the older you are, it gets very, it's, it's not impossible. There's a lot of neuroplasticity. That was Hutton Locker's idea. You, get, you can get cell growth and brains until in the eighties, nineties and so forth. But the fact is it's harder. And so the young people are more flexible and a baby is the most flexible of all because the baby's just soaking at a building, building the architecture that's gonna create flourishing for the rest of one's life. And that is, I think, the logic of everything I'm talking about. But it's not it's it, it's it's amazing, precisely because people are so wedded to particular aspects of skill formation that they don't want to put this into a, a life cycle perspective and really understand. I had long discussions. My former one of my thesis advisors at Princeton was Bill Boland, who was president of Princeton, very important figure in uh, in, in education and in labor economics for that matter. And uh, he was very well-intended in trying to promote the attendance of minorities at Princeton and in the Ivy Leagues or generally. And I was, you know, he'd write, send me his letters, his papers and so forth. And I said, well, Bill, you're starting way too late. I mean, these are kids, they're 18. Why don't you start at three? Why don't you start at one? Why don't you start early? And so I think by the time he died, he was down to about the eighth grade. If he'd lived a little longer, I think he probably would have gone all the way to the origin, but he didn't, so we left it unfinished.
1: So um, so you so you've you've this is what you're explaining that that skills attained at one stage of the life cycle boosts skill attainment at later stages.
0: It facilitates it. And not only it's not only the skill itself, so there's some kind of self-productivity but it's other skills help you acquire skills so here's an example There's something that's the psychologists call executive function that has to do with the capacity to of self control regulation the ability to stay on task some some sociologists some some economists uh, some sociologists some psychologists will call it grit it overlaps with grit it's i don't want to get into the terminology but the fact is it's the notion of being able to be perseverant, and also to essentially guide, to have some sense of judgment. Now that evolves. You know, this evolves over the lifetime. You know, we're still seeing a lot of development of executive functioning among teenagers and people even in the early 20s. But early on, having some modicum of of executive functioning, striving persistence, is extraordinarily helpful for young kids in school. So they're learning something very hard. It's unpleasant, you know. I'm like learning the alphabet or running punctuation, whatever it is in the second grade, very unpleasant maybe for the kid. But the tenacity that's acquired, those skills that allow you to stay on course and to try, and to try even if you fail, those are skills which we typically don't appreciate. They're not measured by the SAT, but they are extraordinarily important for producing knowledge in schools and producing people who, who are productive in society. So yes,
1: I wanted to ask you this. So you've said yeah. that skill formation is a, it's a life cycle process that starts at birth. And you've yes. also, as you're, as you're now talking about, emphasized um, the importance of cognitive and non-cognitive skills.
0: Um, some people hate the word non-cognitive. So we'll call it social. I mean, every, every skill has some basis in cognition, I guess. But That's right remote, let's put it this way: the way that Duckworth and I thought about this when we started coining this term was that we, those skills that aren't commonly tested, things that are not on the uh, NAEP reports or in the GREs or the SATs, and there are a lot of skills that aren't tested typically. Right, and so you're,
1: what you're what you're suggesting is that both these these this multiple this multiple set of skills, or you've called them abilities right, yeah. skills and abilities begin forming at birth, very early in life and yes. build on each other. Yes. So, that that, so can, you just, can you just say a little more about that?
0: Well, it, so there is, there is a component. First of all, prenatal conditions play a huge role. Yeah. We know that. I mean, it's been very well documented now that children, parents, mothers who are living in situations of starvation or for that matter, aspects of, of terror, war, various kinds of uh, adverse circumstances, the children uh, of those mothers will suffer uh, and after, afterward. There are some real effects that are created in the womb, real exchange, and this whole process of transmission of experience through the mother's womb to the child has been very well researched in biology and, on, and in human biology as well. So, but but the fact of the matter is, is that these various skills. You see, we typically one of the big fallacies. I think was a big fallacy uh, in the in the in the 20th century was thinking that IQ was the be all and end all of success. One of your colleagues, Charles Murray, wrote a book on the bell curve, and that book was basically talking about who was smart and who wasn't, and 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 describing human differences in those terms. And I think the book was very useful in the sense of opening up the application of psychological methods into the study of human differences. But it turned out there are a lot of other human differences. IQ explains only about five or 6% of the total present value of lifetime earnings. So, you know, uh, as the old saying was if if you're not smart, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And I think that's true. So we see a lot of other attributes are there uh, Sears of Sears and Roebuck, I uh, used to live very close to where I am right now, um, basically um, uh, was making the statement, Rosenwald, I'm sorry, confusing the seals, made the statement I once heard that he was a very ordinary man and he didn't have any particular ability. And in fact, most of the millionaires that he met in Chicago at that time were not very smart, <laughs> but they had been able to stumble across ideas that could take advantage of opportunities. And those are some of the very traits that we're talking about is non-cognitive skills. So they probably could be lousy at making, you know, doing physics experiments. JP Morgan was no doubt a genius at math, but there are a lot of millionaires and billionaires who want it all good. And yet they see something and it's that creativity which is not captured by test scores. So that's the part that I think is really becoming understood that we have these multiple dimensions and they're not just fixed. See the old, you made a distinction that's really important in the literature. They talk about ability versus skills. Now, a lot of psychologists, if any psychologists are listening, will, will, will bristle at that distinction. I remember when I first started working on personalities psychology, I started calling them skills. You know, they're not skills, they're abilities. And by that, they meant like the early pioneers of IQ, that these were genetically determined, but they're not. And what we've learned is that both IQ and these social and emotional skills can be created by experience. And I, I'm not just dreaming this up. We have a lot of experiments. We followed people. We have this data set now that we followed people up into the mid fifties an experiment that supplemented family life and it produced higher IQs and more motivated people. So uh, those skills are malleable. And that means it's a good thing because it's not just a question of how you're born. This is not a eugenics uh, fantasy circa 1920. This is really a a a, a 2021 vision of what is going to go on about the way that human potential can be realized. And I think the understanding that are multiple traits, that they reinforce each other and they reinforce each other in their development. So here's another example. Think about just smoking and health. I mean, think about various kinds of health practices. It turns out that more conscientious people, more conscientious people as a group are less likely to smoke. They're more likely to be educated. And as a result, you go down their life cycle, they're, more, they're healthier. The conscientiousness led to their acquiring education, which taught them about the advantages of not smoking. And it also allowed them to undertake aspects of self-control, which allowed them to quit smoking if they started and so forth. So it's this multiplicity of abilities. I mean, the whole public policy discussion is so limited. I mean, think even today, people are talking about NAEP scores, you know, oh, the nape score for is for blacks and whites or for people from Georgia versus people from Colorado. or, And, and you know, that's okay. It's a dimension. But there's so many dimensions to human flourishing, and we're now understanding that. We're beginning to understand. Them. Public policy isn't though; <laughs> it just isn't, not yet.
1: So, I'd like to put what you've been explaining in the context of the very well-known Heckman curve, uh, yes. which will show uh, here um, the um, what, what the. So the, I, you can see that. So the, this, the curve is widely cited as describing returns on investment very specifically defined uh, as public spending on government, say early childhood programs like, like pre-K or, or childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how it's usually cited as though what we mean by investment is public spending but you've also written about family environments and parenting as an essential investment in early skill building. Can you talk
0: well, me, about, yeah, go
1: ahead. Can you talk about if and how families fit into what we know as the Heckman curve?
0: Well, see, I mean, one of the traditions at Chicago, I mentioned human capital, but there was another tradition at Chicago that in some sense is probably more important, and that's the study of the economics of the family. I mean, Becker pioneered it. Becker was my colleague and I mourn his departure. We had lots of good conversations and I I really learned a great deal from him and the world did too. But in particular, the economics of the family, the family life is not, I think there's an art, this is a reason, I think it's is strictly an artifice of the way that academia is structured and the way government programs are structured. Because you, for example, get something like an early child program, uh, a program like Head Start, say, or a program uh, uh, of other, uh, a PERI program, for example. And those are programs that we think of as kinds of external programs, programs that are outside and are offered to parents or given to parents. Um, But what, what is not understood yet? It's beginning to be understood where we have a lot of very exciting work showing how family and and these programs interact but the fact of the, the fact of the matter is is that a lot of these what these programs and often are doing is what parents are doing already and and in fact what it's it's an irony to me we have a lot of evaluations now government programs targeted towards younger children we could do with a lot more there's a lot more to do but we don't have and to me, it's amazing deficiency. We don't have any good economic and social study of the impact of a mother on the child's outcome. And my guess is that if you had that curve that you were showing, and you added the role of the mother, then you would find that the returns are even higher. And in fact, the, the idea that the program and the mother are separate is crazy. These programs only become productive when the mother or the family, caretaker, whoever it is. I'm using the word mother because frequently it is a mother, but it may not be. But the structure is such that the that these programs, there's a synergism between these programs, and there is a, a substitution, too, in some sense, that they that the child care programs in some cases are playing the role of what the mother is doing already. And it's amazing to me when we see these very high rates of return. On early childhood programs, and I've writ- written about that. We get returns around thirteen percent per annum. I'm willing to bet that if we really evaluated what the benefits were of a mother working with a child and educate, we'd find raise of return more like thirty or forty percent. But nobody's ever studied it. It's it's viewed it's 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 a pathology of the way research is funded and the way we think about the family as a separate entity from a lot of aspects of public policy. But the, these childcare programs that I've looked at are only successful when they kind of turn on the, the, the parents. They get the mother informed and they get the mother engaged. That's the secret for them. It's that, it's engaging the family and frequently the mother is the family. So it, it, it it's, it's the separation is there I realize academically and even in public policy but the reality is they're not separated. And in fact, good public policy would join them and would nourish both the family and these programs, forming a bond between these programs and the mother, the family, the father, and whatever.
1: So one of your the favorite, my favorite things that you you've ever written um, is the best documented market failure in the life cycle of skill formation in contemporary American society is the inability of children to buy their parents. <laughs> What, exactly. what do you mean by that, and, and how does it relate to inequality?
0: Well, economists are very, uh, uh, like to formulate these uh, public policy, and that at least many economists, not all, but many public policy economists would like to formulate the reason for public policy being some kind of market failure. The argument would be, well, why can't the market take care of this, that, or the other thing? And uh, uh, I think... Uh, I think one thing that's very apparent though, is that there isn't a very good market on the part of the fetus. So we can call it maybe a homunculus. Let's go back to Goethe, some, some primordial creature in bargaining, which family am I gonna be born into and get those advantages? That is truly an accident of birth. And it's not marketable. And it's, it's, it's really not very easily insurable, and it, but it is decisive. There is a market failure in the sense that there could easily be a situation where we have a young Mozart or a young, I don't know, young Wittgenstein, a young Einstein born into a family say in Central Africa uh, without any capacity to go to school or to learn music or to do the, and so those opportunities that families provide would limit the opportunity. I think there's a lot of human potential that is wasted for that reason. And I think that's a scope for public policy. So there is a market failure. So there are two ways to fix it. One is to essentially, you can say, well, we can send, somehow try to remediate later down the road. And a second is you can you know, nourish the family so that that kind of accident of birth becomes less of a decisive factor in the larger uh, social policy. Those are two different ways, in there. and I think they're complementary ways. So, so,
1: so you're, you're, you're assessing the, the, really the root of inequality um, and barriers to social mobility as, as, as uh, deriving from, from the family.
0: Um, oh, I mean, see, this is one thing that's not understood. And I think it's really, if you look at the statistics, by the way, the statistics about income inequality and the growth of income inequality, usually the statistics are statistics about what's called family income, right? Now there's a lot of of bad work being done there where families are equated to tax units and tax units and families are not the same. Okay, but put that to the side. I think what we really have come to understand is that some of the major growth of inequality is nothing that's aware of just to do with hourly wage rates at the factory. It also has to do with the change in family structure in the larger society. More children, more single parent families and what does that mean? It means then often the mother is with a child, she faces the burden of supporting that child and she faces a lot of, of she, she's really under, under stress, financial stress. And as a result uh, that, and, and by the way, the single parent family has fewer resources. And so as, as, as single parent families grow, inequality itself grows. And then there's the other aspect of the family that increasingly we're seeing more sorting among those families, among couples which do form and form two-parent families. There's more sorting, educated males and educated females. They meet at school, they, they, they marry and have children. And that leads to another group which is not marrying or less educated, which leads to a lot of inequality. So the family is a major driver It's not just in producing children, but it's even in the basic statistics. That's the part. It just, to me, the electric wire or the third rail of American policy, and you know this, I'm just saying a homily, nobody wants to talk about the family. And the family is the whole story. The family is the whole story. And it's a whole story about a lot of social and economic issues. And these policies I'm talking about are supplements to the family. Right. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm going on.
1: No, no, no. It, 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 uh, it's absolutely fascinating. So you've been doing some um, really interesting research in, in Denmark that I think bears yeah. on this. Can you tell yeah. us about that work and, and how it's contributing to your thinking on the role of families, the effects of progr- you know programs
0: and so forth? Well, to me, I mean, the, the Danish study is fascinating. For so many tell, tell us what it is. Okay, well, first of all, Denmark is viewed... Uh, I think we have, I have a quote from one of the papers from the Washington Post saying uh, the, the future, America's future is in the Scandinavian state. Something, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing it badly. But the idea, and we have many people and it's not just Bernie Sanders, it's not just Hillary Clinton. And there are many people left and right who sort of see the Scandinavian welfare state as an ideal model. You know, universal health care. It does have universal health care. And it's pretty equal, the access. The qualities are pretty equal. You have free college education. Everybody can go to college, no tuition. You have universal pre-K, more or less. At this point, you have childcare, generous leads. You have many of the features that are out there in the public domain that are truly considered to be solutions for the American problem about social mobility and inequality. And yet, and this is something that staggered me. I've been working with a very brilliant young uh, Danish economist at the Rockwell Foundation in Copenhagen. And uh, his name is Rasmus Landersen. But what we found, and this this staggered me, he took a class with me maybe five years ago. And uh, he came to Chicago and, and took this class with me. And I was talking about inequality in America. And in the back of the class, he brought his computer but he also had access to the whole Danish register system, which means that he has data on the lifetimes of all these Danish citizens from birth to death, what schools they went to, who they went to school with, what their wages were, their employment history, their health, their employment uh, in in other occupations, where they live, who lives next to them, their house back, tremendous data. so he was able just by the time the class was finished to reproduce American counterparts in the Danish data. And so we started working together. We wrote a paper. I just wondered, well, how how much does US inequality compare with Danish inequality? And in the course of this work, we found that in many dimensions, Danish inequality, in terms of skills, in terms of mortality. So let, let me describe the dimension of inequality more precisely. If you look at the education of the mother, the birth mother, And you ask, how much does that explain the life outcome? We're able to trace out the life outcomes of children by their parents' socioeconomic status, measured initially by the education of the mother but other dimensions now as well. And we find that the gaps that are present in American society are of the same order of magnitude as they are in Denmark. And this has been a huge controversy in Denmark. I've I've given some seminars in Denmark and Rasmus is famous in Denmark, justly so, because they like to think all the welfare states really doing well. But what happened was, and what, what this really shows that I think is extremely important is that despite all these public policies that are out there that they aren't that effective in eliminating this fundamental source of inequality. And of course the fundamental source of inequality is the family. It's the family, and then you get to some really basic issues. We want to get to a situation like um, Socrates envisioned, you know, of Plato. Sorry, thinking of uh, of uh, of putting all children in orphanages to equalize them. And I don't think anybody wants that. We know, in fact, when you do that, you create enormous social waste. So, what 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 actually the the family influence is not so easily displaced by the kind. And To me, I think this is, should be highly relevant in the discussions we're about to have about new policies in America. Everybody's pointing to Denmark saying, oh look, universal childcare." Well, okay, I'm not opposed to any of those things, but I'm still saying, despite all that, there are substantial inequalities and it's not just that they're unequal out of the world. People are always going to be different from each other in some ways, but the fact is they're of the same order of magnitude as in America. And the Danes find that totally unacceptable because they see themselves as having created a society with full equality. The one way that they, don't, they do have more equality is in the income distribution. But how is that achieved? That's through taxes and transfers. Very high taxes, very, very progressive. A lot of redistribution. So if you look at the so-called Gini coefficient, notions that the Gini coefficient in Scandinavia generally much lower, much more equal societies in terms of income after tax and transfers. Income before tax and transfers, not so much. And what you do see then is essentially a redistributive state, which is causing income equality. But what's happening, and this is the part that I think is most interesting for me and, and for the current discussion, If you look at how much does this affect social mobility, you know, there's this notion, this Gatsby curve that received a lot of attention some six or seven years ago uh, uh, with Alan Krueger, when he, uh, late Alan Krueger was in the White House. Uh, I think he was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, for uh, President Obama. But anyway, he pushed this curve. And basically the idea was that more inequality at a point in time led to more immobility so, that you were you're, you're more or less stuck in the same position as your parents were. There wasn't so much social immobility. And that's been the theme of a lot of papers recently in, in the American New York Times, in particular, but other people, a lot of different groups pushing this. But what we found was that the social mobility in terms of education and skill was the same in Denmark as the US. So, if we look at the education of the parents, and the education of the children, it's at the same degree. So wait a minute, they're not producing skills at any greater rate. What they are doing is they're redistributing income. And part of the reason why the skills aren't being reproduced, it's not the whole story, is that very high tax and transfer system is actually leading to disincentives to acquire skills. (laughs) That's another big story, but we, uh, Rasmus in particular, my co-author has a very interesting study of his own, which we cite in, in, in our papers, uh, which showed that when a job training program, job subsidy program was given for disadvantaged youth, they took advantage of the program, but at the cost of going to school and learning more valuable skills. So the work training programs there were, I guess, comparable to a lot of what happens here in the U.S. So, so you know, I'm not saying the whole story is there. I'm not trashing the But I think that the the dream, the fiction, I think this is very important work, extremely important work. And for, for me, it's clarifying what's going on. And I think market processes, I think the notion of sorting is very pervasive both in the US and in Denmark. With the Danish data, we're able to study those processes in a much more flexible way. So we're not saying that Denmark is the same as at the US and the Denmark has its own minorities though. It has a very substantial Arabic population which is very disadvantaged, more recent, nothing comparable to the African-American. But but, but what we find is something that is amazingly important I think about the role of family and the fact that family, family, family is playing a central role in ways. So the way I I put it, you know, Max Weber was this sociological theorist, the economist, Sociologist, a very a very broad thinker and important influential thinker, but you know his idea of the bureaucracy. You know he wrote a book on bureaucracy, and he did a lot of work thinking about how a welfare state should be, or we didn't call it a welfare state, but how a government redistributing or dealing with people and what we would call now a welfare state would function. And uh, a crucial feature was equal access. So equal access under the law, that sounds perfect. That sounds like the American ideal, It it was his ideal, equal access. Well, guess what? Equal access doesn't do it. The reason is, is that more affluent parents, more engaged parents can always find opportunities in that system, which less engaged parents won't. So the children will benefit, even though the same benefits are realized. There's an economist at Berkeley Chris Walters, very smart guy, very did some very interesting work on charter schools. And he looked at a population of kids who were relatively disadvantaged. And he found out, he looked at what the impact of charter schools were. And he found a positive impact of charter schools on the kids' performance. But then he found that the kids who benefited the most from the charter schools were the disadvantaged. But the parents, who got their kids into charter schools among this pool were the most advantaged. And so there is an example. Now, and, and that's a real public policy question. I, I don't think it's a question myself personally, but it's a real fact about what a free society is doing here. And we we should admit it and we should then build that into policy. And I don't mean by forbidding parents, you know, like in California years ago, there was this reform which helped destroy the public schools in California. Remember. I've forgotten what the proposition was. It was in the late 70s. And basically they they forbade parents to come in and supplement the schools and give extra equipment. And so the idea was to equalize. And as a result, uh, you neutralize some of the impact of the parent. There's still those effects there, but they're more subdued. So I think we do wanna harvest the powerful force of love and attachment for the child. That, That is such a powerful force and I just think we have to cope with it and then understand that for certain aspects of society, the people who, do to, who drew a blank in the lottery of life, if you want, or didn't do so well, uh, that there might be some compensation down the road. And my thinking about what the form of that social insurance might be would be to help supplement the home life and make the home life more effective for the child. So that's, that's where I link this conversation back. So, but it's an interesting question. I, I, I dearly wish I could talk to Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and many others. It's not that I have any great hatred of the Danish wealth. The Danes are very happy. Have you been to Denmark, right? Never been. No. Oh, if you go down the street in a place like Aarhus or something, you see all these families. It's truly heartwarming. They they really love their children and they engage. But the and it's great. It's great. So, but I think. I think, I think the idea is that there still is this sense that some families are better at doing that than others. And we can do something about it. You know, Here's another aspect about some of the programs that have been put forward are very formulaic. They come out of these cookie cutter models that are frequently put for a program. We must, we must have this curriculum, we must have these requirements and so forth. And what I think is really relevant and really Really important is that we understand that uh, we need some real flexibility built into this system, and that these uh, that that it's that encouragement that 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 uh, building this attachment and linkage, and that some parents some parents literally don't know how to be a good parent. Now, if you say that, that sounds you know it'll, in some circles circles that will be viewed as racist or sexist or what I don't think it's sexist but racist or or somehow anti whatever. But I think what what it is and this is documented. Flavio Clinia at the at Rice has done a number of studies and others before him, less systematically, have documented that if you ask a lot of disadvantaged mothers, what's the normal what's the normal growth trajectory for a two-year-old for reading? They don't know, and that's true even if they have other siblings who do have two-year-old children, because probably those two-year-old siblings didn't grow all that well either. So there's a sense in which we can empower parents, but the whole activity has to be to engage the family. It's the fa- so I think it's the family, the family, the family, and I it, it and I don't know if public policy has gotten there yet.
1: So uh, along those lines, as as you know, there the 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 idea that universal preschool programs, um, essentially beginning the public school system at at birth rather than five, um, that that a couple of things that number one that this is the way to address these problems of of, of disadvantage and social mobility. Number two. Um, that these programs are highly cost-effective. They'll pay for themselves many times over. Um, so I have two questions. One is, what is your assessment of the cost-effectiveness piece? And two, what effect do you think, if we did have universal preschool programs starting at birth, what effect do you think that would have on, on problems of, of poverty and, and, and lack of social mobility?
0: Well, first of all, um, why not have the universal? I mean, the fact is that if you go to advantage environments, they're not going to use those programs. What the mother or their environments are doing or the child care, so you could offer them these programs, they're not going to take it. You're not going to go to uh, you're not going to go to Winnetka and give the open a head start program when they can go to a child care, an enriched child care center, a Waldorf type school or some kind of school, which the parents carefully encourage and cultivate. So that, so in some sense, it's a political ploy, universality. Um, and you can always have a political, you can always have universality in which you have a graduated schedule. So you could say, okay, look, yes, we'll open it in Winnetco or some of the other affluent suburbs in North Shore of Chicago, but we'll pay you full freight. You have to pay the full freight. But if we do it in in Inglewood, a poor neighborhood in Chicago, uh, not so far from here, actually, that you would actually find, uh, it would be free or very heavily subsidized. So that's one program. But, but I think the finding that is spouted a lot, and I, I've seen this, people thank me for providing the basis for it. What I have found systematically, and I think it's known by any serious scholar in these programs you have looked at it, that the greatest benefits are to the disadvantaged. So it's exactly those kids growing up in disadvantaged homes where the parents maybe don't have enough knowledge, or maybe just enough skill, or may themselves not be all that fluent in language, or or capable of helping the child, where the parents might need a boost, you know, learning parenting. A lot of very su- successful programs in less developed countries that are successful in turning on parenting at much lower cost than these current uh, programs like Head Start and. Uh, uh, uh abc and perry and many other programs. so i think the, the this the, the targeting that where the evidence is all the iconic studies everything i've ever done has been targeted to disadvantaged children i don't have there's there's one program called the ihdp program which has been studied and there is some work on it by uh, wiswall at wisconsin and sojourner at uh at the uh, University of Minnesota. And there are some benefits from that program, but the main benefits always accrue to the disadvantage. And that's because the parenting environments are not as strong. And the advantages that we were talking about having a good family, uh, good is too, it's too value-laden, but a rich family life offering lots of stimulation, let's call that, uh, let's use that word. Uh, then those, those advantages, aren't shared by everybody and those programs can do it. But it's the disadvantage to actually do this, who benefit the most. And that I think is, so I don't mind. I I know that there are, for political purposes, people wanna say it's universal. And I know the argument, the argument is you don't wanna stigmatize. So if you're giving it, so the argument is, well, everybody will like universal pre-K because you're not just giving it to the poor. And that means then that we're not stigmatizing the poor. But the fact of the matter is that if we want not to waste money, we would target it to disadvantaged kids, just that's a fact.
1: So there's two things that have been worrying me about the universal thing that I'd love to get your thoughts on. Um, the first is we have universal K-12, right? It's, it's, it's a, we have universal public education starting in, in kindergarten and at this point in most places. And what I, and I, my background actually is in K-12. I worked with very disadvantaged, low-income schools in New York City for 10 years. And Well, you may have
0: it, but right now in Chicago, we don't have
1: it. (laughs) So, so in, in in my, right, no, this was the old pre-pandemic. No, I understand, I understand. Right, right, so, but what I observed is that we have a universal system. And at some point, um, it's, it's, it has evolved into, into a system in which, uh, disadvantaged kids are, are, are ill-served uh, by that system to a considerable degree, whereas more advantaged families, often their, their public schools are working great for them. So one of the things that worries me about framing, about implementing a universal system is well one could start out with a kind of a clean slate and a lot of excitement, um, and yet there seems to be this, this trend in which, you know, this, this tendency in which eventually uh, there's the possibility that the, the more disadvantaged children will be in lower quality programs. What does that, what do you think about that?
0: Well, I mean, uh, in, in, the, in the case of the public schools, there's no question that uh, there's a lot of sorting going on. That's part of the sorting process, which is going on in Denmark and in here, here's an interesting finding in Denmark just to go back to Denmark and then answer your question. In Denmark, teachers wages are the same everywhere. There aren't teachers I mean here in Chicago area uh, the teachers on the north side will learn a lot more than teachers in one of the very poor suburbs on the south side. None of that goes on in Denmark. There's full equalization. And yet if you look at the quality of the teachers, who are actually in those neighborhoods, they're very strongly sorted by the, by the, by the education and affluence of the parents. Why? It's not like they are slipping a 50 under the table or something. It's that they, this is exactly a, a, how economists would predict it. You can't, they can't get paid in money, they, but what they can get paid in is good students and motivated students. And that makes a teacher's life a joy, as opposed to a chore working with unmotivated and not very bright students. So, literally, there's an awful lot of sorting that goes on, even when you mandate equality. And it is mandated. Is we know what their, annual, their salaries are. So, we know what they're getting. There's no, no cheating. And yet, that's so that's the point here is that, again, in the public schools in Chicago, rich parents, not, not always rich, by the way, it's not a question of money. By the way, this is one of the big fallacies in this area. And I think it's an artifact of using certain kinds of statistics. Right now, there's this big discussion. There's a whole group of child development psychologists and economists working with them who will argue that poverty is the big problem for child outcomes. And they will argue, oh, what we should do is give them more money. And if we give them more money, we will solve their problems. Okay, the the fact of the matter is, is that it's not just money. It really is not just money. And I think people who actually are, but the point is, is that some parents, motivated parents, even very uneducated parents, but motivated parents can produce very effective, successful lives for their children. And they do all the time. This was studied here in the housing projects in Chicago. You had women who were basically illiterate, not illiterate, but low- Low levels of education, not very skilled, whose children came out in a very healthy, normal functioning way. And they always talk about the home life that was created for them by their parents, usually the mother. And so it's, and you see stories like this made, I mean, Roland Fryer, for example, at Harvard, will always talk about his aunt, who sort of took care of him and so forth. And uh, uh, she was a teacher and so she, the point is, is they that, so, so having that family influence, that person, it's not always a question of, of, of money, but it is a question of parenting, engagement with the child, attachment, interaction, and the like. And I think that's what's missing from the discussion. That it, So throwing money at a problem, I, honest to God, it sickens me that 60 years after we did that on a wide scale and got very limited results, that there's another whole revival of this. And the problem is statistics. It's that right now we have very crude data on poverty. So what's the measure of child poverty? The measure sounds reasonable. Income, poor kids and families with less income. I don't think that's the right definition of child poverty. I think the right definition of child poverty is children who haven't, living in environments which don't stimulate them, which don't encourage them, rich or poor. So they can be very, very poor, relatively poor, and have a stimulating, engaged relationship with their parents, but that's not understood. So we look at these statistics and you know, food stamps, and not food stamps, free lunch criteria. And I understand the political discussion lives on that. And the so-called evidence-based analysis uses these crude measures of poverty, but it doesn't really get to the core of what poverty is. or or what family influence it. So again, it's like people don't wanna talk about the family. They wanna talk about something that's quote, more objective. And I I think it's, don't you think that's a central question in American society now? Nobody wants to talk about the family. (laughs) To me, it's amazing. It's like we have this problem staring us in the face and everybody wants to look the other way and say kind of hide, oh no, it's not it. We're gonna do everything but the family. So. Right.
1: Well, so sort of on the flip side, another thing that worries me is, and I, there maybe there's an economics term for this, that if there, and I think there's some evidence that this may have happened in, in Quebec when they implemented universal childcare, that yes. if there is both uh, both f- uh, free or close to free childcare available, and even a norm established of women mothers working and putting their kids in childcare. That that good mothering could be displaced by mediocre, out, you know, childcare. Um, that 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 it would that that it would reduce the quality of children's environments by displacing their home environment with a childcare environment. What do you think of that?
0: Well, I think this study that you're talking about is done by um, several people. I think including Gruber famous for his uh, <laughs> famous for his uh, famous uh, video about Obamacare but uh, but this but this is a, this is a good study so forget about the, the, the error but I think um, I think yes what was found is that as a result of that these were media these were warehouses they, they, you want to separate out child care from child development and the child the, the child care that he was studying that they were studying, By the way, it was found mostly for the boys. The girls were robust. So all the effects were, but yes, they actually were. And that's a general finding throughout. Boys are very vulnerable in a way that girls are not. Disadvantaged boys versus disadvantaged girls. And it's not just African-Americans. We have other studies that suggest that vulnerability, but that's a different story. But But the structure that I think is really, really important here is that yes, because they were put in these warehouses, that it, there, there are famous extremes here. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the studies of the Romanian orphans. <laughs> now, <laughs> the, the childcare centers in Quebec were not orphanages in Romania. No, they were not anywhere close. But what they were is fairly impersonal. There wasn't any real quality. And so I agree, if you take somebody from a quality environment and put them in an inferior environment, you can make them worse off, There's no question. So quality has to be sine qua non of the whole enterprise. You've got to really make sure that people are, the children are getting quality. And if they don't, you can earn them. That makes perfect sense. Forget about childcare and think about a grade school. I mean, suppose you imagine you taking a kid out of a good school in third grade, and then you go to a lousy school and third, another third, they'll do worse. And they could do even worse than not going to school at all. So. That's what happened in Montreal and it's happened elsewhere. So quality is important, really important quality. And, and, and the, the absence of the quality that was offered at the home was a real issue. It's a real issue. I'll give you an example that's even more dramatic than that though. I was in, uh, I've been in Brazil a lot over the years not recently, but I was in Brazil. And I remember we were studying this question of uh, working women in Brazil. And child care was a real issue in Brazil. I mean, a real crisis. And these are poor women living in favelas and so forth. They had nobody, no family member to look after the kid. But what they would do, seriously, what they would do is they would tie the child's leg to a table. And some of the younger children would wind themselves around and choke themselves to death or something. There were terrible stories like that. Now, this was in an extremely poor area and so forth. So that's a great example of, you know, the mother working and the child. So I'm not suggesting there's anything like that going on in the U.S. or maybe not much. But yeah, you can make things worse. I don't think there's any question about
1: it. No, we're just at 5.15. I can't tell you how fantastic this has been. This has been one of the most fascinating conversations I've had in a long, long time. And I'm well, so-
0: enjoying it. it. We should continue it. We don't have to do it online and, and publicly. But these are issues that I feel deeply about. I mean. And it's not that I have a political axe to grind. I really don't. I mean, I I really think we should do something about disadvantaged children. And I think we should do something about groups of people who are suffering from having adverse family lives. And but see, the beautiful thing is that not only do I think these ideas are important, but they're really interesting. From a point of view of an academic working on these questions, they pose enormous challenges. And challenges that they keep you up at my, you know, graduate students will ask me, what should I work on? And I would give them the answer, always the answer, work on whatever you can't help but work on. <laughs> and that's my case. This is such a deep, important problem. So I'm glad we had a chance to discuss it. I'm happy to discuss it further with you or other people. I think it's, I just wish the family would get back into more of the center of our life. We Everybody knows it's important. But it's changing too and and I think that's the part of the society that people have not quite put their hands around lot of traditional views so the role of women is changing it's not the same as it was 60 years ago and a lot of people have trouble with that as well and so we might want to think about arrangements that are more flexible that accommodate the kind of changes that women want now and many women want, but not all women I don't I can't speak for women or or anybody else for that matter, except myself. But, but I think that the family life is so fascinating and it's not just an academic issue. It's the core of, I think it's the core of problem in American society is misunderstanding of the family, so.
1: All right, well, I very much look forward to continuing the conversation.
0: Well, it was good being Thank with you. So you. Okay, take care, I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.